Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we discuss insulin resistance and energy metabolism in the brain and the rest of the body with brilliant lifestyle experts and our dear friends, Dr. Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbero. Cyrus and Robbie are living with type 1 diabetes and have been on all kinds of diets and programs you can think of to manage their diabetes. And after years of trials and error and studying the evidence, they created the Mastering Diabetes Method to show how you can eat large quantities of carbohydrate-rich whole foods like bananas, potatoes, and quinoa while decreasing blood glucose, oral medication, and insulin requirements. Through their amazing work, they have helped thousands of individuals reverse their insulin resistance, lose weight, and master their health. Over the last decade, cumulative data have established that the brain is an insulin-sensitive organ. Alzheimer's disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity are among the most expensive and disabling disorders worldwide. For a long time, the correlation between cognitive impairment and metabolic diseases was undetected. We now have evidence from several lines of research, including our own, that the incidence of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease is higher in type 2 diabetes patients, pointing to common mechanisms driving these disorders. Please join us on this episode as we go into the details of this very important topic that is extremely useful, whether you're dealing with diabetes or not. It's the key to understanding how our brain and body uses glucose as an energy source, and what are the best ways for us to provide this fuel without taxing other systems. We're so excited that Cyrus and Robbie have written a book titled Mastering Diabetes, which includes all of this incredibly important information, which guides the reader how to reverse insulin resistance in all types of diabetes, whether it's type 1, type 1.5, type 2, prediabetes, and gestational diabetes. They've included more than 800 scientific references and drawing on more than 36 years of personal experience living with type 1 diabetes themselves. We've included the link to their book and other resources in the notes. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Cyrus and Robbie, we are so happy to have you here with us today. We've spoken with each other in multiple other times and other venues, and it's so awesome that you're here at our home, around our table, and we're speaking together. It's so much fun. Thank it's you for really, being here. It's really a pleasure. The meal you just fed us was spectacular. Huh. We're not just you know, fans of yours. We actually know the journey you're, you've gone through and what you're trying to achieve and the selfless journey that you're undertaking because what you've gone through, millions of people are going through right now. Yeah. And, and, and it's such an important message you're giving. One of the most prevalent diseases, diabetes, type one and type two. And it's, um, it's actually increasing, type two is increasing. And the answer we have in the medical field is not the answer. I mean, it's a stop-gap measure. And, and when it comes to the lifestyle and nutrition, there's absolutely nothing. So we're, we're so glad to bring this message to everybody. But before we get to that, I uh, would love to hear from both of you as far as your journeys. 
So Cyrus, how did you get on? on yeah, first of, of all, thanks for having us here. We really appreciate it. We're huge fans of you guys' work. And so, you know, being able to talk with you guys is always fun, always informative. So I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 22. And so I was a senior at Stanford, just trying to graduate, move on with my life. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, I get very thirsty. I'm talking, you know, one gallon, one and a half gallons, two gallons of water per day. I was cramping frequently when I would try and go to sleep and my energy levels were just in the toilet. I just, I had nothing. So that was happening for a span of like one or two days. And I knew something was wrong. So I picked up the phone. I called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy. And I said, hey, Shanaz, what is happening to me right now? And I explained my symptoms. And she said, she started, she's normally very cool under pressure. She was not cool under pressure right now. She just started crying immediately and was like, stop everything you're doing. You're talking that you have type one diabetes, go to the health center right now. And I was like, Shanaz, type one diabetes, come on. I'm like, I'm an athlete. I watch what I eat. I'm not overweight. How could I possibly have diabetes? Because at that time, I didn't know anything about diabetes. I literally just thought it had something to do with old people and cake. That's it. And so she was like, Cyrus, I don't have time to explain. Just go. So I said, fine. So I show up at the health center. I'm there. They check my blood glucose. 600 plus. Wow. So it's supposed to be between 80 and 130. I was six times higher than it needed to be. So as a result of that, they took me to the hospital. They gave me a drip irrigation of, uh, or IV saline, one arm, IV insulin, the other arm. Blood glucose came down. 24 hours later, discharged from the hospital. Two types of insulin, a basal insulin, a bolus insulin, test strips, syringes, a blood glucose meter, a carbohydrate counting guide, and a bracelet that says I'm a life alert patient. Wow. 24 hours later, checked out, discharged from the hospital. And also while I was in the hospital, they also identified, they sort of put my health history together for me. They said, you have not one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions. Number one, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which I had developed six months before, and I knew about that. Number two, alopecia universalis, which I was developing. So I started getting sort of bald spots on my head, on my eyebrows, and now I lost everything. And then number three, type one diabetes. And so I was like, what is happening here? Literally six months ago, I had, I was totally normal. And now I have not one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions. So I go back to my normal life. The doctor's recommendation was eat a low carbohydrate diet because that's what they tell people living with diabetes. Mm. The yes. more carbohydrate you eat, the more insulin you will use, the more your blood glucose will fluctuate. So eat less carbohydrate and that solves the problem. So I said, fine, more turkey burgers, more fish, more peanut butter, more milk, more cheese, and small amounts of bread, small amounts of rice, small amounts of fruits, small amounts of potatoes. That was it. When I did that, my blood glucose was supposed to become easier to control, but it was not easier to control by any stretch of the imagination. It was a, it was a roller coaster. It, was, it literally felt like I would test my blood glucose and my blood glucose meter was a random number generator. It was a joke. Give people a sense of what you were going through at that point. I mean, uh, people who don't have diabetes don't have a sense of checking your glucose levels and not being able to manage it. Uh, it's a sense of panic. I mean, because you've just been given the diagnosis and not the tools to manage it. Completely, completely. It's, it takes you down emotionally and mentally and physically very quickly because from the physical side of things, you can feel when your blood glucose is very low, you can feel it. It feels like, uh, you know, you get like slurred speech and your, your vision gets a little blurry, hands start shaking, you know, you might get diaphoretic sweating. It's very uncomfortable. When your blood glucose is high, there's like various, you know, symptomology. But what I feel is that my head is giant. It feels like I'm eating metal. Like I have that taste of metal in my mouth. And it kind of feels like my nose is plugged. Like I have just sort of like a balloon inside of my head. 
both situations don't feel good. I'll tell you that much. So from, from like a physical feeling, that's what I get. And then emotionally, you start to beat yourself up because you're like, man, why did I just hit two high blood glucoses in a row? Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not smart enough? Why can't I figure this out? And then emotionally, it sort of like starts to make you feel depressed. And then you're sort of like, God, like I got this thing. And then it turns into anxiety. Like, why can't I fix this? Something's wrong, right? And so the whole thing kind of cascades every single day. Every single day you try, you try again, you try again, you try again. And you just get to a point where you're just like, why am I even trying? Mm. I don't understand, right? So after a year of doing this, my blood glucose, I came home from work one day. It was like five o'clock PM. I was excited to eat dinner. I had played an hour of soccer. I had gone to the gym and I'd eaten what I thought was a you know good low carbohydrate diet. I was expecting my blood glucose to be in control, 120, 130, 110, so that I could eat dinner. I checked my blood glucose, 288. I was so mad. I was so mad that I took my blood glucose meter and it just in this f just fit of rage, I just took it and I threw it across the room and it just shattered. And then I just sunk into the couch and I started crying. And I was like, I give up. I literally give up. There's, I don't know what to do. And it was in that moment of like desperation that like clarity set in. And I heard a voice, literally heard a voice in my head that said, Cyrus, you have to learn how to eat. You don't know how to eat. You mm. don't know anything about nutrition. And this way of life is not working out for you. Learn it. And so at that moment, I was like, wow, that's what I'm gonna do. So I started picking up books, cookbooks, started attending lectures, I started watching videos. And before I knew it, I was introduced to this idea of being a plant-based eater, which was totally new for me because I used to be that guy who used to make fun of plant-based eaters when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, somebody was vegetarian or vegan and I would say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. I wish things were better for you, yeah, yeah. right? And then here I am all of a sudden being faced with the prospect of being plant-based. And for the first time in my life, I was like, great, I'm, I'm in, let's do this. I think the lesson that I want everybody to get out of this is not just about diabetes. I mean, you guys are brilliant researchers and thinkers and, and you know the subject, both of you have studied the subject and you know it better than most doctors. In fact, we know you know it better than most doctors because it's the, the insulin and the metabolism and, and how it works, that's easy enough to understand. But the answer is not just in pills and insulin. It's, do you have to know the food that you're consuming three to four times a day or more? So none of the physicians are trained in that. You have lived it, you have learned it, you've tested it. That's one element that people can gain from you. The other element is I'm bewildered. I mean, we're the scientists, we're the physicians, but we haven't experienced the disease process. To me, it's so valuable for people to realize that, you know, you can have a devastating disease like this. In fact, in your case, at the peak of your, you know, youth, you know, you're in Stanford, you don't develop one disease, but three diseases. That's just devastating. You're right? overwhelmed initially, but the path out of it wasn't just the path out of it. It's a path that's actually opening up the way for everybody else. To me, in many ways, you are more valuable than many other speakers that speak about these subjects because you are both the thinkers, the experience, and you've experienced it and you've tested it. And there's no confirmation bias because you can't play that confirmation bias game. It's your life. You're not, you're not in a group or a bandwagon. The only group you have to live by is your, your own, because if you make the wrong decision, you're dead. Correct. Or all these other ailments. So I think what you write in this book, uh, we're gonna talk about this a lot, <laughs> because I want everybody to kind of read this book, because it's not, it's called Mastering Diabetes, but it's, it's about mastering your life. 
Agreed. And, Agreed. And living it courageously. So I'm getting emotional, but it's important for people to realize when they're getting their data, there's one thing that's science, and which a lot of people actually don't use that, and you guys use it. You use it properly, you know, you, you, the weight of science. The other is when your life depends on it, it's a different level of urgency. So you're not doing the anecdotal thing. You're not just doing the science thing. It's all of it combined. Correct. That's why I tell you, uh, we value your information immensely. Totally and, and appreciate I think it. This sh everybody, not just diabetics, people that have a chronic disease, they have to read this book because that's at the core of the, it's the battle. That's what we value about, uh, what you bring to the game. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate that. And I, everything you said is totally true. One thing that I think I have learned in this process, having gone through, you know, transition to a plant-based diet, seeing unbelievable improvements in my overall health, improved blood glucose control, less insulin use, being able to exercise more, being able to recover faster, the list goes on. Diabetes used to suck. I used to hate it. I used to wake up in the morning and I used to wanna to be rid of it. And I used to say, get this thing out of me. And I wanted to separate myself from it. Now, diabetes is literally the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it is a gateway to being able to learn, being able to help other people and being able to really improve the quality of not only my life, but other people's lives as well. And if it wasn't for diabetes, who knows what I would be doing right now? Who knows what my state of health would be? And I can honestly say that right now I'm healthier because I had developed type 1 diabetes. Back I, as That's an fascinating. Yeah, as, as an extension to that, I mean, I don't mean to belabor chronic disease or, or belittle or make light of it. Chronic disease can be terrible. A disease can be terrible. But if you're able to manage it, it's like I say to people, it's like, okay, I can't fly but I don't worry about flying because I just, that's not something that I miss. So then I do everything else better than, you know, what I could have done otherwise. So if you have a disease that you can manage, it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. You can use that as a nidus, as a, as a point of start for a much greater life that goes beyond you. So I, that's an amazing thing. So Robbie, we know you for a long time. Robbie's a friend. He's he's a dear, dear friend. I mean, Cyrus uh -huh. is a friend too. But the You're fact like, that he's Cyrus is all right. <laughs> Robbie, he's a real friend. <laughs> I, I happen to live lot, pretty close. We're actually <laughs> almost neighbors. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Robbie's an inspiration, and um, your story is incredible too. Just like what Cyrus was saying right now, you made this disease your purpose in life, and you just kind of you know went into it wanting to know more about it and conquer it. Tell us about your story. Yeah, just like Cyrus, it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing in disguise, for sure. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12, just about to turn 13. So I'm coming up on 20 years now living with type 1. And my older brother was actually diagnosed with type 1 nine years prior to me. So I was quite familiar with the condition. My family was familiar with it. And I was complaining to my mom. I said, mom, I think I have diabetes. I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I'm thirsty all the time. Like something's going on. She said, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. I said, okay, fine. So she was out of town with my dad. We were living in Minnesota at the time and they were looking at homes in Florida, which we, we moved to Florida. And she called the check-in and said, how are things going? I was like, well, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She says, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood sugar meter and test yourself. And I was over 400. So that's four times higher than I'm supposed to be. And my brother said right then and there, yep, you have type 1 diabetes. Pack your bag. You're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So we go to the general doctor. 
he runs some tests and says, yep, you have type one diabetes and my brother's in the room. It's the first time I ever see him cry. He's like, oh, I'm just so sorry. You have to go through this. And it didn't really hit me. I didn't really understand what was going on. My parents fly back the next night. And I remember my dad saying in the hospital, it's just an inconvenience. You can do whatever you want in life. And that really stuck with me. And the way my parents, you know, raised us was just, you know, take care of it. You'll be just fine. So I was a type A personality. I took good care of my diabetes for sure. And we had good care at the Mayo Clinic. You know, they had doctors that endocrinologists, psychologists, nutritionists doing the best they could with the information they had. And really at that time, just trying to say, hey, you're a teenager. We want you to be normal. So eat standard American diet and just learn how to take insulin. Wow. That's the t- treatment. So that's, that's what in hindsight, I mean, that's still what's going on. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And in, in hindsight, I'm like, mm, I wish that that could have been an opportunity to improve my health sooner, but it's okay. So eventually, as a person living with type 1 diabetes, you learn, you try to figure out, okay, what can I do to take better care of myself? And the beginning of my health journey was taking supplements that my dad was selling. So he was doing a network marketing company. And that was just the beginning of me thinking, okay, wait a minute, the stuff I put in my body is affecting my health. So maybe I can just try and improve that. And it was a slow journey of, okay, you know what? What if you stop consuming processed foods and get rid of MSG and additives and all that? And I just started learning and learning. And eventually in high school, I came across a book called Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. We are not recommending this book. This guy ended up in jail. (laughs) He had infomercials. There's some fraud going on here. Did I ever tell you that I used to watch those infomercials and be like, oh my God, I like that guy. (laughs) Kevin Trudeau was his name. And the book planted a seed in my mind that, you know what? Maybe it's possible to reverse type 1 diabetes. And my mindset was, hey, yeah, we don't know how to do this right now. The smartest people in the world are not saying this is possible. It's not in the research. But you want to know what? Somebody has to do it first. Yeah. People said the same thing to Roger Bannister before he ran the four-minute mile. He said, that's not possible. You can't physically do that. And once he did it, now plenty of people can run a four-minute mile. So that was the start of me going and doing anything and everything I possibly could to try and be as healthy as possible. The mindset was, if I can allow my body to rest and heal and restore, then maybe it can make some new beta cells and I can produce my own insulin and I can reverse type 1 diabetes. That was the goal. So I started going down this path of going deeper and deeper into trying to make lifestyle changes. I follow the Weston A. Price Foundation. This is where you're having grass-fed beef. You have raw milk because they say it's better not to pasteurize your milk. So I go to the grocery store, actually the, the local market, and I would buy raw milk for cats because it was illegal to sell it for humans. Oh, wow. So. Why have I never heard that story? That's incredible. <laughs> so... That's I didn't the, know that either. <laughs> yeah. Again, I would do anything. That's why he, he, he purrs once in a while and starts looking <laughs> at yeah. I thought that was for other reasons. Yeah. Crazy. That makes sense now. Okay. Oh, okay. That's great. So I tried that for a little bit and I didn't see any changes in my diabetes health. And at the same time, I'm struggling with cystic acne. So I have, you know, I'm trying everything. Microdermal brazial treatments, creams, laser treatments. Eventually they put me on Accutane, which is one of the most serious drugs you can possibly take for acne. My parents had to sign a waiver because some people have committed suicide on that drug. But hey, when you're in high school and you have cystic acne, like you'll, you'll try anything. I had plantar fasciitis, which was really frustrating as a competitive tennis player. I had warts on my feet. I got sick every year, even though I took Nasonex and Claritin D. You know, just common issues that people have with the standard American diet. They're frustrating. So I'm not seeing much improvement in some of those areas. 
And again, I'm just continuing to say, okay, what can I do to give my body the best chance of healing type one diabetes? That's the mindset. And that's sort of, that why has really impacted my motivation to plant the seed for like everything I've been doing for the past 13 years. It's really that strong why in hindsight was a big deal. Yeah. So next up, I tried a plant-based ketogenic diet. So this is a diet where I was eating lots of oil, lots of nuts and seeds, and lots of greens. And I know you have a very technical audience, so I want to get into some of yes. the nuances here. When I was doing that diet, I was taking the least amount of insulin I have ever taken, okay? 10 units of total insulin per day and eating 30 grams of total carbohydrate per day. So my 24-hour insulin sensitivity ratio was three to one, all right? So I'm getting really excited. My insulin's coming down. I'm at this freshman at the University of Florida at this point. I'm telling myself, this is working. I'm just going to keep on doing this and eventually I'll get to zero and life's going to be amazing. But unfortunately, I hit a plateau. The 10 units stayed and I felt terrible. I had lost a bunch of weight. I was blacking out on campus. At this point, I was scared. I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm putting in all this effort. All my friends are just eating the regular food at the cafeteria. They don't have any issues. And I'm just trying all this stuff and struggling. So I went back to a naturopath that I'd seen in high school. And she said, okay, you know what? Maybe let's try chelation therapy. That could be a good thing for, maybe you need to do some cleansing. Maybe there's some heavy metals in you. I'm like, okay, I'll consider it. And I was going to do it. It was going to be expensive. I was going to drive from Gainesville to Tampa to do this chelation therapy. But before I made that commitment, I heard a podcast from the same person that taught Cyrus. This guy's name is Doug Graham. And he's talking about eating fruits and vegetables and how that can help your body get rid of heavy metals and how your body's capable when you get some nutrition. I'm like, wait a minute, this is interesting. This guy's saying I can get the same results. It's going to be less expensive. And now I get to eat a bunch of fruit. Okay, let me try this out. So I start dabbling in it. And on the podcast, he was promoting a book. So this was in September of 2006. And the book finally comes out in December of 2006. So I pick up the book. I read it straight through. And Cyrus is one of the testimonials in the back of the book. Oh, wow. And I'm like, wow. Wait, I was in the back of the, not the front of the book? <laughs> you should have been on the cover. That, that would have right. sold some more books. They should yes. really reconsider Mental that. Notes. So I'm like, wow, this is really inspiring. This guy's getting great results on this program as well. And he also had a lot of pictures online looking really fit. I'm like, wow, this is inspiring. So with, this with is, his shirt on. No, oh, no. Okay. definitely no, no shirt shirts. on. No shirt on. <laughs> so I start a coaching session or a coaching program with this guy, Doug Graham. I email him every single day for 90 days straight. He emails me back every single day for 90 days straight. And I learned this program in and out. And now I'm eating essentially a fruit-based diet. All the fruit I want, lots of greens, lots of non-starchy vegetables, and just going to town. And the experience I had was a dramatic improvement in my insulin sensitivity. So I thought for sure, if I'm going to eat, you know, all the bananas I want, all the mangoes I want, papaya, persimmons, watermelon, I'm going to need to inject a lot of insulin and it's going to be hard to manage my blood glucose levels. And the exact opposite happened. I did not need as much insulin as I thought. Now, my total insulin did go up a little bit. So I went to a physiological normal amount of insulin that my pancreas would have secreted normally if I didn't have damaged beta cells when following this healthy plant-based diet full of fruit. So now I'm using a roughly 25 to 35 cell units per day in the range, but I'm eating well over 700 grams of carbohydrate per day. So my change in insulin sensitivity is over 600% improvement 
and insulin's ability to function. I now have become glucose tolerant at this state. Wow. And I'm very excited about this. So I started looking into research. I'm at the University of Florida. I have access to all these journals. And I find out that this stuff has been talked about for almost 100 years. Just sitting in the research talking about glucose tolerance and literally, you know, <laughs> Dr. Sansom in 1926, Dr. Hemsworth, literally saying the more carbohydrate they eat, the higher their insulin sensitivity is. And this is repeated decade after decade after decade. And I'm like, wow. Neil Barnard has information out at this time. Yes. I'm learning about his stuff. And I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. What I'm experiencing in my own body, every single meal is the solution for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. The absolute straight up solution. If you can teach people living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes how to make the insulin that they're already producing work more efficiently, they can completely eliminate the disease from their life. And this has became really powerful. So I continued down this path of just, wow, I want to share this information with as many people as possible. And ended up working at six, Forks Over Knives for six years. And then now I've started Mastering Diabetes with Cyrus in 2017. Amazing. And just trying to get this information to as many people as possible. And the way you guys put it together, I've, I'm addicted to you know, some of your talks. The first time I heard you two speak, was at uh, the Plantrition Conference. And um, I loved how, well, I loved your energy, but how you simplified the concept of glucose sensitivity and tolerance, insulin sensitivity, and how a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet can actually help you manage it really well. Mm -hmm. And you do it beautifully. Mm, thank you. How do you traverse this environment of confusion and this conflict mm -hmm. about diabetes and glucose tolerance. Yeah, I know that a lot of people are essentially fighting with each other and, you know, because if something works for one person, they stick to it. They stick to it and they don't want to look any further. And diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, is the sort where you can have improvement, a lot of improvement at whatever stage you are in. How do you converse with someone who is stuck at a point and is not willing to experiment to get better, to feel better, and to thrive? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough question. I think in general, you know, there's a lot of conflict in the world of diabetes. There's a lot of conflict in the world of nutrition. Somehow, you know, it's been religion, politics, and now nutrition. And these are the things that people <laughs> it's added just... added to it, yeah. It's, it's just constantly conflict-ridden, you know, and it's unfortunate because I think people who lose in that situation are the people who are just trying to seek out a solution for themselves. And, you know, they get caught in between, well, you said this and he said this and she said this and how come they're different and I don't understand. So I'm going to do nothing. And I think that that happens to a lot of people, unfortunately. But, you know, to answer your question, a lot of people want to improve their health and the prospect of changing your lifestyle can be kind of daunting. And we, I understand that. I went through it myself. You guys went through it. Robbie went through it and it happens. But Everybody has to come to a certain point in their life where they decide that their life is important enough to justify the effort that it takes to change your lifestyle, right? Yeah. yeah. And it just so happens that many chronic diseases are a good excuse. So I got diagnosed with type one diabetes. He got diagnosed with type one diabetes. That's literally our excuse for getting interested in trying to fix our own health. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's such a strong conviction and we're the type of people that just want, we want to improve. And so independently, both of us basically made that journey. Yeah. But some people, they just, they don't want to put in the effort because they haven't convinced themselves maybe that they're worth it. 
that, you know, they might be thinking, oh, it's going to be so hard. I don't really want to put in that effort to do it. And, you know, that's a tough, it's a tough mindset, but. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully Dan Butner's work and the work you guys do together can make healthy eating the easy alternative. That's the whole point. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's got to be the easy alternative for the majority. Because, I mean, imagine this. It's not just about the type of food you're eating. Because I think if you're st eating the standard American diet and you even go to, and I'm going to say something very controversial, go to a carnivore diet. Or if you go to a, a more meat-centered diet, but you're aware, so therefore you're going to eat a little cleaner. And if you go to a, a ketogenic diet, you're aware, so you're eating a little cleaner. And any diet, if just the act of being aware, you're going to cut out the really bad stuff. You're already ahead of the standard American diet. So your conclusion will be, oh, I ate meat for a long time and I feel a little better, therefore this must be good. This must be the rule. This must be the gold standard. It's not because there's a, another layer of complexity to this. What happens to you could be affected by multiple factors. That, we talked about this, um, the anecdotal, uh, you know, the placebo, or we call it placebo plus, you know, just feeling better and the change and all of these things. And everybody can feel that whatever change they make, that's one level. Second level is, which is, this is the one that nobody talks about. And I want to kind of keep hitting this short-term and long-term evolution have completely different parameters and trajectories. Thank you for saying that. What is short-term benefit does not necessarily mean long-term benefit. What is good for you in the immediate does not mean that it's good for you when you're getting older, past the age of reproduction. Nobody talks about the fact that what happens to you after the age of reproduction was not programmed in to evolution. So don't count on, you know, bringing this evolutionary arguments. You have to really approach it completely differently. Now look at this, all this complexity and somebody in front of them on a constant basis on TV, yeah, you know, these fatty foods that we're addicted to because of survival, the sugary food that we're addicted to because of survival. And then somebody says, oh no, you have to change and you have to get rid of these things that are fatty and sugary. And then other people are creating confusion. It's a, it's a dilemma. It's a serious dilemma. Yeah. The one other thing that we have to talk about is short-term and long-term. And you guys do it greatly when it comes to things like, we will get to this, but ketogenic diets and all of these things. You're talking about not just immediate benefit, but long-term benefit where your system actually changes for a long time and permanently. And the wonderful thing about them is they've experimented with all of these different nuances and variations of the diet and lifestyle. So let's jump and talk about low carb diet because that seems to be the norm when the word the term diabetes comes in low carb carbohydrate is always the villain and has to be eliminated completely what do you guys think the problem is with a low carb diet when well, it comes to diabetes uh, i'll start off with saying by we have a lot of compassion and empathy for the people who are seeing carbohydrates as the villain when they're living with diabetes because diabetes is one of the conditions you can self-monitor very easily, meal by meal. And people living with diabetes do try eating carbohydrate-rich meals. They do try eating some bananas, some quinoa, and they see the blood glucose spike. They look at the meter and say, I eat by my meter. I just follow the meter. The meter tells me that food's bad for me. So we can understand where they're coming from, but there's a lot of confusion here, a lot of confusion. And I'll let Cyrus talk a little bit more on that. 
Okay, apparently I'm supposed to talk right now. <laughs> okay, so when yes, it comes please. to lo- what Robbie said is, is actually a really good, is good point because the medical world, you know, doctors are phenomenal people. They're very altruistic. They want people to get better. But the training that they have teaches their diabetic patients to eat by their meter. So, you know, if that blood glucose meter says that you are 160 after your meal, then you probably made a mistake evaluate that meal and people get trained into being like, okay, whatever happens in the next two hours is the most important thing. And they live by this two hour window of opportunity. Right. But what Robbie's saying, which is, you know, similar to what you're saying, it was like, let's expand that window. What happens to you over the course of a day? How about a week? How about three years? How about 30 years? That's kind of important. Yes. Right. Yeah. So when it comes to low carbohydrate diets, there's a, a lot of confusion about, do they cause diabetes? Yes or no. And do they improve the health of people living with diabetes? Yes or no. Okay. And unfortunately there's a lot of squabbling in this world, but when it comes to low carbohydrate diets, the reason why so much of the medical world is behind low carbohydrate diets. And the reason why so many people living with any form of diabetes are eating low carbohydrate diets is because they flatline your blood glucose. It works. It works brilliantly. Okay. And I saw this personally when I did that plant-based ketogenic diet, of course, not only does it flatline your blood glucose, you need less total insulin. Yes. I experienced that myself. When you take out the carbohydrate energy, you don't need as much insulin to process that because there's not so much carbohydrate in your system. Exactly. So if you look at it from sort of the lens of like, what is my glucose doing? And what is my insulin doing? Then you start to, you know, there's a bunch of evidence that says, well, my glucose is lower. That's a good thing. My fasting insulin is lower. That's a good thing. My post-meal blood glucose is lower. That's a good thing. My A1C fell. That's a good thing. I lost weight. I lost my blood pressure is lower. My total cholesterol is lower. My HDL improved and my triglycerides are lower. Right. Check, check, check. Nine for nine. Good job. So if somebody starts a low carbohydrate diet today, they go back for a blood test three months later, they see nine plus biomarkers moving in the right direction. What's your conclusion going to be? Mm-hmm. Conclusion is going to be, okay, this is great. This is working. I like this a lot. Right? Now, the problem here is that, you know, there's a lot of research that says that when you adopt a low carbohydrate diet, especially a ketogenic diet, which is a very low carbohydrate diet capped at about 30 grams of carbohydrate energy per day, that if you were to eat that, then you would actually reverse type two diabetes or reverse pre-diabetes. You see this all over the place. And there's many, you know, evidence-based papers that are now showing this. And the question is, what is the criteria that you're going to use to evaluate whether or not somebody has actually reversed diabetes? Okay. And we can argue this from many different perspectives. If you look from a perspective of show me your A1C value, show me your fasting glucose and show me your fasting insulin. And if your fasting glucose is less than hundred, if your fasting insulin is less than five and your A1C is less than 5.7%, boom, congratulations. You reverse type two diabetes. Yeah. It's yeah. gone. Yeah. Right. And you can get all of those results on a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet. Correct. All of those will happen. Right. The problem is that that's, that's viewing one aspect of your glucose metabolism, but it's missing a completely separate aspect of just glucose metabolism. And that is what happens in the glucose challenged state. And what do I mean by that is if that person who dropped their A1C and their fasting glucose and their fasting insulin were to eat a meal, a single meal containing carbohydrate rich food, whether that's from fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, or whole grains, these are whole sources. If they were to eat a carbohydrate rich meal, what they would likely find is that their post-meal blood glucose would be high, their post-meal insulin level would be high, okay? Their A1C is not gonna change for that meal. So what that indicates is that in the state where they're consuming a carbohydrate-rich meal, right after that in the postprandial state, all of a sudden now their glucose and insulin are high. And what that indicates is that they haven't actually changed the biology 
of their muscle tissue or their liver tissue. And as a result of not having changed the biology of the, either one of those two tissues, the carbohydrate challenge becomes overwhelming. And so what ketogenic dieters argue, or what low carbohydrate people argue, is they say, well, why would you ever eat anything carbohydrate rich? That doesn't make any sense at all. There's no requirement for carbohydrates. There's no essential carbohydrates, right? And so as a result of that, they, it, it reinforces this idea that carbohydrates are bad for me. Carbohydrates make my blood glucose go up. I'm not going to eat carbohydrates because they're non-essential, et cetera, et cetera. So they cap their carbohydrate intake at 30 grams per day. And as long as they are minimizing, greatly minimizing their carbohydrate intake, their glucose metabolism will look phenomenal on a piece of paper. Okay? Right. So the problem with that though, is that again, you know, if you were to eat something carbohydrate rich and you were to actually challenge your muscle tissue or challenge your liver to be able to metabolize the glucose from those carbohydrate molecules, you would find that both of those tissues are incapable of doing so. And that is a, that's a warning sign. That's a red light that says something is going wrong. You're just avoiding the material that's gonna challenge those two tissues. It's a Band-Aid solution. It I is. like to tell people, imagine if you were a bad driver, okay? You get in lots of car accidents, you get speeding tickets, and then we take away your license. You don't drive anymore. Okay, you don't get in accidents anymore. You don't get any speeding tickets. Did we solve the problem? That's what's happening here. People yeah. are taking away carbohydrates. They're not solving the problem. Correct. Right. That is such in fact, a you actually example. become worse as a driver. Over, and Absolutely. If you, yeah, but you when you start to drive again, you're going to suck. You're going to get an accident even more likely to get an accident. That's Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. I also love the example that you give of how a diet that is very high in fat and low carbohydrate affects us at a cellular level. Oh, yeah. I've seen your talks where you actually line up people on the stage right. and then you allow people to come in and give an example of how the cell works and how the fat actually jams the door. Can you kind of give us a brief description of what happens at the cellular level? For sure. Okay, I'm gonna cap this conversation to being like only three more hours. Okay, so I won't take too long. Okay. I just love that. Okay, so here's what happens. When you eat a high fat meal, a single high fat meal, Let's say you're eating a meal that contains 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrate, something in that respect. So high fat, medium protein, small amount of carbohydrate, okay? The fat that you're eating is actually triglycerides. That's how it actually exists in food. So once it goes into your digestive system, the glycerol molecule is ripped off from the three fatty acids. And now you have fatty acids that are free floating inside of your small intestine. Those free fatty acids get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine, put into your lymph system, eventually put into your blood. Once those fatty acids are circulating in your blood, what they can do is they basically gain access to tissues because they're using your blood as a highway system to get to their eventual destination. So what is their destination? Number one, adipose tissue, fat tissue. Number two, muscle. Number three, liver. Those are three giant sinks that can absorb large amounts of fatty acids. So if 100% of those fatty acids from a meal went into your adipose tissue, Okay, either in your abdomen, your butt, you know, your chest, your armpits, you name it, wherever that adipose tissue was, if 100% went in, then there literally would be no problem. Diabetes may not exist as an actual condition. The problem is that some of those fatty acid molecules end up inside of the adipose tissue where they belong. Like 50 to 60% of them will, but then the other 30 to 40% will actually travel and migrate and get inside of your muscle tissue and get inside of your liver tissue. And your muscle and liver have a capacity to be able to store small amounts of fatty acids. But when you're eating a fat rich meal today and then another one for lunch and then another one for dinner, and then you're continuing to do that over and over and over again, over the course of time, the amount of the fatty acid influx through your diet can end up overwhelming your muscle and your liver. 
So your muscle and liver inside of each cell have these lipid droplets that, that are basically storehouses of fatty acids. And as that lipid droplet grows and grows and grows and grows and grows within each cell, the cell starts to respond because it's in a high energy state. So it's got so much stored fatty acids inside of it that are so energy dense that what the cell actually wants to do is mount a sort of survival mechanism and say, okay, I need to block this stuff from coming in because I do not want any more energy. I'm already maxed out. Mm -hmm. And so the cell, if the cell could basically block more fatty acids from coming in, it would do so. But it's very hard to block fatty acids from coming into a cell because the transport mechanisms to get them inside are very easy. They're, they're not really regulated by, with any level of complexity. So what the cell does is it says, okay, I can't block those fatty acids from coming in very efficiently, but what I can do is I can shut off that insulin signaling pathway. So as a result of that, these fatty acids actually end up antagonizing the, the intracellular domain of the insulin receptor and it's uh, downstream molecules. And as a result of that, it literally shuts off or, or strongly reduces all of the downstream signaling events that happen from the insulin receptor. Mm. So what that means is that the next time you eat a banana or the next time you have some quinoa or some wild rice, within two hours, the glucose molecules from those carbohydrates are circulating in through your blood. But because the fatty acids have already sort of like caused a traffic jam inside of that cell, when the glucose comes to the door of the cell, there's insulin to accompany it. So your pancreas manufactures insulin. Insulin's job is to say, knock, knock. There's some glucose in the blood. Would you like to take it up? And the cells have an opportunity to say either, sure, I'll take it up or no, I don't want to take it up. And in this situation, when there's already an, an overaccumulation of fatty acids, the cells basically say, hey, insulin receptor, the insulin receptor can't even recognize insulin. It can't even see it. Mm. And, and as a result of that, the insulin saying, knock, 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 nobody's answering, nobody's answering, knock, 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 knock. And the glucose is like, well, darn it, now I got to stay in the blood. So as a result of that, the cells basically are shutting off their ability to communicate with insulin, mm -hmm. which then causes a traffic jam of glucose in your blood. So two hours after a carbohydrate-rich meal, you check your blood glucose, you look at it, you're like, huh, 245? I had one banana. Mm -hmm. How's that even possible? I guess bananas are bad for me. See, every time I eat fruit, my blood glucose goes up. Every time I eat that quinoa, my blood glucose goes up. I guess carbohydrates are bad for me. And that's the conclusion that gets reinforced. Exactly, right? exactly. But we like to say this all the time. It's not the banana's fault. It's not the mango's fault. It's everything that came before that banana or mango that actually caused this thing called insulin resistance, where the cell mounted a self-protective a self mechanism to slow down or impair the insulin signaling pathway and as a result of that, it caused the traffic jam of glucose and now you have high blood glucose. So the solution to that problem could be to avoid glucose. Let's just play devil's advocate. Let's say that was the solution. And you were to say, okay, fine, I'm gonna eat a ketogenic diet. I'm gonna eat a high fat diet. That way that banana would never have gone into my mouth. I'm not gonna eat any more fruit. I'm not gonna eat potatoes. And so as a result of that, you're never challenging, you're never asking your muscle tissue or your, or your liver to have to respond to insulin to take up glucose because there's so little of it in circulation. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, your blood glucose, flat. Yeah. So you can play the carbohydrate avoidance game if you want, and it will work and it will make you, it'll make your blood glucose nice and flat and it'll drop your insulin requirements and your A1C will become very low as a result. But there are a lot of other complications down downstream and in the Absolutely. future that people don't really see immediately. 100%. So in the short term, you get flatline blood glucose, but in the long term, a completely different story emerges, no question. But the problem here is that if you play the carbohydrate avoidance game, you'll get flatline blood glucose, right? But you still haven't, you haven't changed the biology of the tissue, right? You, you haven't altered the biology. You haven't, 
gotten rid of the excess accumulation of saturated fatty fat that is accumulated over time inside of the muscle and inside of the liver. So as a result of that, you are living in a glucose intolerant state. You're just not eating anything that will metabolize the glucose to challenge that metabolism. Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is we teach people the opposite. We say, listen, we want to fix the problem. What's the problem? Where did the problem start? So you go all the way back and say, oh, well, the problem is that there's an overaccumulation of saturated fatty acid inside of these liver and muscle cells. Why don't we treat that? If there was some magical vacuum cleaner that I could take and just go along your skin and then it would just pull those fatty acids out, you would become insulin sensitive within an hour. Right. Right. But they don't have that magic vacuum cleaner. But the magic vacuum cleaner is eating a low fat diet, high in plant material that's coming from whole food sources. If you do that, you restrict your fat intake. The fat that's already inside of your liver and muscle has an opportunity to get oxidized. It doesn't happen instantly, but it'll happen over the course of weeks to months. And as a result of that, the insulin signaling pathway inside of those cells becomes more active once again. And as a result of that, when you eat a carbohydrate rich food, then insulin goes, knock, knock. I got this glucose, you wanna take it up? And the cells are like, hey, come on in. <laughs> and Welcome. then they, yeah, the GLUT4 receptors open up, the GLUT2 receptors open up and they allow glucose to come inside. And before you know it, glucose that used to be trapped in the blood is now able to enter the muscle and liver the way it's designed. And as a result of that, you now are considered insulin sensitive, insulin responsive. Okay, insulin is more efficient as a result. Exactly. I mean, to explain that component that what you're gaining is a superficial change and what you're losing in the long run is this deep intercellular damage. Exactly. That can only sustain itself for so long. And that's just the cellular level. At the vascular level, we talk about the vascular damage. And we know that fat actually damages endothelial lining and, and that lowers the amount of nitric oxide for our diseases which are mostly at the core, most of the diseases are vascular, whether it's Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, it's not completely vascular, but vascular pathology is a driving force. You know, there are a lot of people that say, oh, the brain is made of fat, so we need fat. Well, I love that argument. First, yeah, the, first of all, the brain is not made of fat. It's, it's got 40% fat. Second of all, the 400 miles of vasculature get, that get energy, oxygen, and sugar, and fat, and everything to those cells they are more susceptible than the cells in many ways. Mm -hmm. So before they even get to the cells, the vascular lining, endothelial lining, the whole blood-brain barrier is made of endothelial lining. You're destroying that with the fat, with the excessive amount of subfat. And nobody ever talks about that. It appears that people are looking at myopically. It's almost, I just want to look at one little thing and this number that I'm looking at, oh, this is changing. It's not just about that number. If you want health, it's much more complicated. And you guys do an amazing job of explaining that. And to drive that point home further, the number one cause of death for people living with all forms of diabetes is heart disease. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Makes sense. So we always talk about, you know, animal-based ketogenic diet and the type of fat that is prominent in, in that diet is saturated fats. And we all know how bad that is for the vasculature and, you know, as neurologists speaking from the neuroscientific perspective, the development of insulin resistance in the brain is associated with that as mm -hmm. well. But there's also a lot of talk about a plant-based ketogenic diet mm -hmm. for diabetes. What do you guys think about that? I'm glad you asked actually, because this guy has personal experience. And then we can also talk about the sort of biochemistry. So you want to give your personal rendition real quick? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that a plant-based ketogenic diet is better than an animal-based ketogenic diet, for sure. You get a lot of fiber, so that's a huge benefit. 
I mean, Cyrus and I, we just wrote an article about this recently. And we asked ourselves, why do we not follow a ketogenic diet? Why do we choose to eat lots of fruits and lots of vegetables? And for me, when it comes to my health and, and just what I'm trying to do here, number one is that I feel it's important to be glucose tolerant. I really think that's an important part of long-term health. I think that's the way our body is designed to run. That's the optimal fuel is to be glucose tolerant. So even when you do a plant-based ketogenic diet, you're eating yourself into a state of glucose intolerance. You can't eat a bunch of blueberries. You can't eat bananas. You can't eat a pint of blackberries and have a healthy blood glucose profile. You're going to struggle with that. That's problematic. And also, I just enjoy eating lots of fruits right, and vegetables. Yeah, right, right. But from a health perspective, that's a huge, huge concern. Okay, so there's there's basically like three different types of fatty acid molecules, or three different classes. We got trans fat, saturated fat, and unsaturated fat. Okay, and they're the ability of them to influence insulin resistance goes in that order. So number one, the most problematic type of fatty acid molecule are trans fats. Trans fats are found to a certain extent in you know, natural in, in meat products, very small amounts, just naturally occurring. But then the majority of people get their trans fats from packaged and refined products. Mm -hmm. They get them from partially hydrogenated vegetable oils in particular. And so that's due to a chemical hydrogenation process that turns a liquid into a solid. Right. So those things are all, all, all in our packaged food supply. When you consume trans fats, they cause not only can they trigger insulin resistance and increase your risk for diabetes, but they are detrimental to cardiovascular health. Raise your LDL cholesterol, drop your, your, raise your LDL, drop your HDL, increase your ApoB concentrations, no question. So we know this to be true. The second class are saturated fatty acids, which uh, come mainly from animal products. And uh, saturated fatty acids lead to the insulin resistance cascade that we talked about earlier. The third type that you would be eating predominantly on a plant-based ketogenic diet would be mainly unsaturated fatty acids with small amounts of saturated fatty acids. So it is a true statement that if you were to adopt a plant-based ketogenic diet, that you would be uh, ingesting a sort of safer, less problematic version of you know, fat molecules that would be less likely to trigger uh, you know, advanced cases of insulin resistance, true statement. Number two, your nutrient density would increase likely. As you started a standard American diet, then you adopt a plant-based ketogenic diet, you're actually gonna be eating more nutrients mm -hmm. because you're gonna be eating more plant material, period, end of story, even if it's high in fat. So that's a movement in the right direction. The problem though, is that if you do adopt a plant-based ketogenic diet, again, it's the total amount of fat, even if it's unsaturated, that can really set the stage for insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as, in, as a thought example here, if I were to go eat a meal right now in which it, there was you know, a medium carbohydrate value, call it 50 grams of carbohydrate, 75 grams of carbohydrate, and I put in 30 grams of fat that came from something like an avocado or maybe coconuts, right? Mm -hmm. And I were to eat that meal, I guarantee you, I could check my glucose two hours later and my glucose would be sky high, mm -hmm. okay? And it's again, it's not that avocados are bad for you or bad for me, that's not the point. The point is that the presence of a significant amount of even predominantly unsaturated fatty acids impairs insulin signaling. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, you just have to know that going into it. If you want to eat some, some avocados, go for it. I had no problem with that. They're very nutrient dense and we actually recommend them. But just know that at that very meal, trying to eat carbohydrate at the same time is going to cause a problem. I want to space your carbohydrate intake out a little bit further down the line. Or most importantly, what we recommend is keeping your total fat intake 
less than about 15%. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you can maximize your ability to be glucose tolerant and be insulin sensitive. And that's the best case. That's the best scenario of all. Amazing. Absolutely. So glucose tolerance is the, is the goal. Tell us about your experience with you know, the patients and the participants in your program. Well, we're very excited to have had the opportunity to work with over 3,000 people at this point in our coaching program. That's incredible. So when we first started working together, we had just small group coaching. That was it. So we would have a once a week video call, one call for people living with insulin dependent diabetes and one call for people living with non-insulin dependent diabetes. So we would do that. It was just me and Cyrus. We were doing everything. And it was really, really fun at the time. But we could only help so many people. So fortunately, we've been able to gather a group of amazing coaches in our team, and we've been able to expand. And now we have much more people that can be served at one time. And we're really, really excited about that. And it's the community aspect that's a big deal. So in our coaching program, we give people an online course. It's step-by-step -step system. Just start here because small changes make a big difference. And when you try and bite off more than you can chew, it becomes frustrating. So we have found that changing one meal at a time is really important. So we have this online course, step-by-step, -step, clear instructions, videos, PDFs, and people start following that. And then the second part of our program is the community. So we have an online community group. It's on Facebook. That's where people are these days. So that's where we go. We meet them where they are. And in this Facebook group, we have people asking questions. What are, like, what do I eat for breakfast? Or what's a good recipe? How do I handle this restaurant? How do I travel this way? What about this science? I heard this lecture. This guy said that fat's actually what I need. I need more fats. They're asking all these questions and logistical things and science things. And they'll get an answer from one of our coaches within 24 hours. So they can feel supported every step of the way. Somebody is there with them, a qualified person who understands what they're going through and understands how to walk them through the stages of change that's happening. So we have that. But then, most importantly, is the community aspect. You make a post of saying, hey, you know what? I'm struggling. I, I fell off the bandwagon. Or I'm, and then you have so many comments within minutes saying, it's okay. Like, I've been there. That empathy, that support, that compassion, here's how you can get through it, is really, really valuable. Going through this alone is very challenging. It is. Very challenging. So when you have a group of people who not only can understand what you're going through, but also people who've been out on the other side. Hey, I also was living with type 2 diabetes. I also was very insulin resistant in the beginning. I had that frustrating experience where my blood glucose was sky high because I ate this recipe on the Master Diabetes website. But just stick with it. You can do it. You got this. I, it worked for me too. So the community is really valuable. Yeah. And then the third component in our coaching program is we do live Q&A calls. So they can see our coaches face-to-face -face and we can have a conversation. That live back and forth is really valuable. And even if people come to the call, they don't have a question, just listening. They're learning from other people's questions. Mm -hmm. So we've had a lot of success with our program, but beyond just diabetes numbers, I mean, lowering their A1C, getting them off diabetes medications, lowering their fasting insulin levels, Stuff like that, it's almost, it's easy. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, guaranteed. But seeing people reverse fatty liver disease, yeah. seeing stage three kidney disease reversed, seeing neuropathy going away, retinopathy, that stuff, it's really powerful. Rheumatoid arthritis, hypertension, high cholesterol. Yeah. It's, I mean, the list goes on and on. 
I mean, you guys are public health. I mean, yeah. or programs like this, especially yours, uh, because public health is about access, access, access. Access to information, access to resources, and access to support. You just spoke about those. I mean, in the healthcare system, which is a sick care system, doesn't have that. Correct. 10 minutes with a physician. I say this over and over again. A fake smile, listen to the heart. Most of the time, they're not even listening. For our case, it's tapping the knee. And on the way out, quickly, a prescription and out. That's not healthcare. That's wow. not, that's sick care. That's not even sick care. That's a stopgap measure. It's nothing. You know, when you join a program like this, you're actually getting guidance, database-driven guidance, not just short-term and long-term and sustainable. Getting back to our previous statement, the plant-based ketogenic. I have no doubt that compared to a standard American diet, it's better. 100%. Yeah, but is it sustainable? That's another part of public that health. That is a really important question. We talk about this all the time. Even, you know, fasting. I mean, we think fasting works. In fact, even genetically it works. But am I going to go to the American public, 330 million people and say, your job is to go fast for three days in a row or 36 hours or even 18 That's, we have a much easier way. Whole food plant-based. You're not missing anything. It's great food. You're actually changing your metabolism, your system. So when they come to your program, they're getting the top of the science. I'm, I sound like one of those uh, infomercials, but, but it's true. It is true. You know, they're but getting wait, science. There's more. I know. <laughs> no, but but they're getting science from people who actually looked at prevention and lived it. Then they're getting support as well and resources. I right. love that. I think that's the the way healthcare should be evolving. So uh, and we we've talked it. about this a lot, you know, on our bike rides about how we need to provide information that large numbers of people can apply. Exactly. By the way, talking about those bike rides, here's the type one diabetic. We rode from here, Redondo to uh, Santa Monica, 18 miles. Yeah, I think he single-handedly kicked all our butts. Oh, he sure did. Yes. He always does. The kids were easy. He he killed the kids early. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. No, but you're absolutely Then we fueled up on some fruit. Yes, we did. And you guys you know. were good to go back. We no, sure did. No, I, I love the idea of applicability of any program. You know, working in clinics with people who are suffering from devastating diseases, whether it's stroke or cognitive impairment or any you know, diabetes-related complications in the neurology field, you basically see that a lot of health has become inaccessible. And when it comes to food and lifestyle, there's a very elitist perspective going on there. Oh, you know, you have to have this many supplements or, you know, we have people coming in with shopping bags full of supplements for their medical conditions or people who go on a particular diet that they actually have to pay for. Or for example, you know, even speaking of ketogenic diet, it's actually not easy and kind of expensive to eat a ketogenic, a plant-based ketogenic diet, or forget about animal ketogenic diet, which is horrible for you. So you know, the kind of dietary patterns that is applicable, that is easy, that is you know easy to follow for people who live in food deserts or are living on food stamps, I think that's the way to go, to make it easy for everyone and no matter where they live and what conditions they're at, for them to be able to apply it. I mm -hmm. think that's true public health and that's where the conversation needs to be. Agreed. I fully agree. Now, can I ask you guys a question here about sure. insulin resistance? You guys are masters of, uh, of telling the story of insulin resistance inside of your brain. Because what we just talked about is what happens inside of your muscle and liver mainly in your peripheral tissues. 
educate me because I find this fascinating and I don't know as much as you guys do, but how does the insulin resistance of your peripheral body also crosstalk with your brain? So let's start with this amazing organ. By the way, what we've been doing so far has been using this amazing organ. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, the brain, <laughs> the amazing brain, uh, which is, I always say, the most energy hungry organ in the body. Uh, three pounds, 2% of body's weight, 25% or more of energy u- utilization throughout the day. Even at night, it's actually using more of energy than any other body organ. So energy utilization is critical here. We can't go wrong here. And on top of that, add to the fact that it's a closed environment with the blood-brain barrier, it's in a hermetically sealed environment. So getting rid of waste products is difficult. It doesn't store fat. So when people say it needs fat, it doesn't. It only needs omegas and and the rest is, is able to do a lot of things by itself. Although it gets some glucose and insulin from outside, it also produces a lot of things by itself, its own fat. So it is a organ that is fairly self-sufficient, very sensitive, very energy hungry, and we can't make the mistake of short-term, long-term. I keep coming back to this. We keep hearing from people that, you know, I went on a ketogenic diet that felt sharper. Yeah, you felt sharper because you wanted to believe that the steak that you liked and now you're getting it on a regular basis makes you feel good. That's a different kind of feeling good than what the feeling good of at the cellular, at the molecular, at the neuronal level is. So for us, it's personal. We cannot make the mistake because those little changes end up being strokes, you know, in your 50s and or in, in our population in, in San Bernardino and people in their 40s and 30s coming right, with strokes. Right, we see that all the time. Well, now we know with people, who, uh, children who are obese or have, uh, you know, diabetes type two, secondary to bad food, they have microvascular disease in the brain at that age, at age 12, 13. At that age, as at adolescence? At yeah. adolescence. Wow. You can also, oh, wow. That's and, and And people want to play around with the games of confirmation bias. There's no room here. We have to tell people that a whole food plant-based diet gives the brain the proper amount of energy allows it to use the insulin from outside and inside the brain in a way that optimally gives energy to the brain without any waste production, without any fat accumulation into the cell, without any waste accumulation into the neurons. These neurons, once the waste accumulation starts, an entire cascade of inflammation, oxidation, and even amyloid production starts from there. Mm. And it starts very early. Now, the problem with our situation is as opposed to yours of diabetes, although we, we've written papers on diabetes, and it's that you don't have that meter that detects the change right away. Exactly, that's you the problem. You see the change 20 years later. Right. But the damage happened at age 12. Right. And just because Joe Rogan wants to prove to himself that, you know, I ate meat for the last week and I feel better. Mm-hmm. What is that? That's not even science. That's not even that's not even anecdotal argument. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, but because it's every time I speak, we are not indebted to anybody. In fact, even in the plant-based world, even in, not even to the plants, it's to our patients that we know what happens 10, 15 years earlier that ended up with them suffering for 10, 20 years of lost consciousness, lost awareness, mm-hmm. strokes where one side of the body was paralyzed, and it started decades earlier. Mm-hmm. And now people are coming up with these weird, silly, elitist, or self-confirming diets where there's no science at all. And you've done an amazing job in this book. Let's advertise it. <laughs> this amazing book, Mastering Diabetes, 
because it's not just a personal story of these two people that have lived it, and but also the science, and then they have thousands of patients. Exactly. No, yeah. this or is clients. Like, what an amazing gift this is for people. You're not only educating everybody how to take control of their bodies and their lives, but you're giving them a message of hope and the kind of path that you're showing is really fun. It's yes. fun. You're including all these amazing foods and you're not making people feel deprived. You know, being diagnosed with diabetes is a scary thing. You guys said that. And I, I see that. And we've been on the other side where we've diagnosed people and you see them just start crying because they feel that, you know, a big part of their lives have been taken away from them. But you give that back and you empower them. I love that. Speaking of your program. So if someone, you know, gets started eating the way you have described it in your book, and I hope that people can actually go and look at it. And then they suddenly see these changes in their blood glucose while their bodies are getting used to the new state. You know, what should they do? Is that something that will get better? And how do people actually get started on this path? So you're referring to people who adopt a you know similar diet or the diet that we recommend. Yes. And then they're seeing what types of changes in their glucose. It's going up or it's coming down? It's, this definitely should go up, right, initially, if they're not doing the right thing. If they're, say, for example, if they've been low carb for a long, long time. And then they start reading your book and they start eating a whole food plant-based diet and you know high in carbohydrates. Good question, very good question. So we see that most of the time. So let's say a person comes in, they're like, hey, I've been eating a ketogenic diet for the last two years, right? We know based off of the types of food they're eating, again, even if they're eating plant-based ketogenic, they're going to be living with a medium to high to potentially very high level of glucose intolerance. So as a result of that, if they were to just start eating a lot of fruit or have some potatoes or some oatmeal, you know, in a decent quantity, their glucose would skyrocket first thing right off the bat. Right. So what we do is we teach people, the first thing we want you to do is we want you to, to assess your level of insulin resistance. So we have a simple sort of quiz that we put into this book that basically says, just answer these questions. Tell us how many servings of meat you eat per week, how many servings of eggs you eat per week, how much exercise you do on a daily basis, and they go through this uh, entire questionnaire. And then at the end, we do our best to try and assess and be predictive about what their level of insulin resistance truly is. So you answer these questions and you find out that you have a medium level of insulin resistance, as an example. At that point, we say, okay, great. Here's your medium meal plan. This is the first meal plan to eat for the next 21 days, right? And it basically allows them, because they're living with a medium amount of insulin resistance, they can eat a medium to high amount of carbohydrates without seeing their blood glucose go crazy. If they take the insulin resistance quiz and they find out they're high or very high, then we put them onto a separate meal plan, which happens to just be lower glycemic. I'll use that word basically meaning slower digesting carbohydrate energy and a slower total quantity of carbohydrate energy. And then over the course of time, they will eat themselves. They will earn the ability to eat larger quantities of carbohydrate. So we basically teach people how to sort of like walk slowly if that's important for you. But then, in, you know, in Robbie's in my case, as an example, when I came into you know, eating this way, I thought, and I was like, oh, well, I'm probably pretty insulin resistant. If I eat that giant, literally that giant bowl of eight bananas, right? Because <laughs> that's what some of the meals look like. If I eat that meal of eight bananas, it's gonna take me 30 units of insulin to go through that thing, yeah. right? And I found that actually it was using, not 30 units, but it was using, I was predicting that it would be using 30, and it would get, I would get by with something like four, maybe five oh, units gosh. of insulin, right? I'm just talking small amounts. So point being is that there are some people whose 
uh, glucose metabolism changes incredibly quickly. I'm talking within 24 hours. And so you might think, oh, I'm going to be at a high level of insulin resistance. And then you start eating this way and all of a sudden, boom, your glucose drops quickly. And that's actually more common than we originally anticipated. So point being is that, yes, it's important to understand where you currently are and then use that as a basis for how you can progress to get to full plant-based. And I think an important part of this process is also the scientific education of understanding that you're treating the problem. You're addressing insulin resistance. The blood glucose number is a symptom of the real disease, of the real problem. So, you know, you go through the book, you hear our personal stories, then you get the science, and then you get to the how-to. So having that scientific understanding of what's actually happening in their body when they see the high reading is really important to sticking through the process. Amazing. I, I, absolutely. I, I, I think what you're describing is a personalized adaptive program. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. Right. I, I, that, that's the optimal. And they've included a behavioral aspect to it as well, where you kind of you know, create a smart goal for everyone. You go specific, mm -hmm. you uh, want to personalize it, and that is the way to succeed. And mm -hmm. that actually becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. If someone does not have diabetes, mm -hmm. they've never been in this field and they don't know how it is, and mm -hmm. they, would this book be helpful for them? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked that question because most of the time when, when people are like, oh, you wrote a book? What's the book about? And I say, oh, it's called Matching Diabetes. And then they're sort of like, I don't have diabetes. I'll, I'll tell my neighbor about it because she may be living with diabetes, right. right? You know. And what I actually respond with is like, no, 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 I understand. I understand. Like, you don't have diabetes. And so a lot of this book might seem like it doesn't apply to you. Mm -hmm but I hate to break it to you, it totally applies to you. Are yeah. you a human being? Yes, okay, cool, right? Now, I'm not gonna go around saying that every single human being on the planet should be eating a low-fat plant-based whole food diet. I mean, that could be a true statement, but I don't know for you know certainty. But I do know that the majority of people who are eating the standard American diet or eating a medium to high-fat diet would benefit from transitioning over to something that's lower fat, more plant-based. Now, there's a ridiculous statistic, which is that there's currently 30 to 33 million people in the United States living with some form of diabetes, whether type one or type two, yeah. okay? There are 85 million people in the United States who are living with prediabetes and don't know it. Wow. <laughs> Literally don't know it. 85 million? 85 million. So we're looking at a total of about 110 million people who are living with some form of insulin resistance, are either prediabetic or diabetic or on their way to being prediabetic, and that's a huge problem. It is. We, we did a paper in, in one of the largest databases, NHANES, yeah. which is nationally representative. And we looked at insulin resistance or pre-diabetics, pre-diabetics, and we excluded the diabetics and looked at that in relation to cognition. Even pre-diabetics had lower cognitive function. Interesting. I mean, that should scare people. Right. So this book should be, I mean, it's a great book. Of, I mean, in many ways you can say mastering energy metabolism of your body. Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, everybody needs energy metabolism and every system, one of the four processes that we talk about, actually most of it is related because if you don't manage energy metabolism, lipid metabolism is altered well, directly. Inflammation is a path that actually comes out of this and oxidation as well. So energy metabolism is at the core of every disease. But in case of 80 million, as you said, 80 million people, if you don't master that, Forget about cognition. Your cognition is affected early on. Absolutely. Is it too late to rename the book? <laughs> no, do it. Just mastering energy Scratch. metabolism. You got a permanent marker over there? <laughs> Change it. No, it's, it's amazing. Wonderful. It's amazing. Well, guys, um, when is the book coming out? 
February 18th. Okay. And people yeah. can go on Amazon and pre-order right now? That's right. Yeah. So in fact, you, can, you want that though. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The publisher okay. told us to try and pre-order this or try and get as many pre-order sales as possible because it helps turn this thing into a bestseller. Now, Robbie and I've had a thousand conversations about this whole idea of becoming a bestseller. Like every author wants to become a bestseller, right? right? To a certain extent, it's like a, it's like a badge of approval. Like, yeah, good job. You became a bestseller. But honestly, the two of us, we don't really care about that badge or the ego boost that you get from it. We literally want this book to be in more people's hands. We want this book to travel and getting a, you know, a good status allows the book to travel farther. So getting the pre-orders is definitely important. Point being is that, you know, you can go on Amazon, you can go on Barnes and Noble. If you go to our website, masteringdiabetes.org slash book, you watch a video, you can learn all about it. And if, even if you live internationally, you can purchase from a place called Book Depository. You can get free shipping and save 10%. It's great. It's a genius. Free shipping worldwide. I have no idea how this company That's stays amazing. in business. Really? And you still get 10% off the cover price of the book. I thought for sure, hey, if you're going to do free shipping, I'm sure you're just going to mark up the price of the book, the mm -hmm. cover. Yeah. No. Uh, it's unbelievable. That's it amazing. really is an amazing gift. And I personally know that I will be buying multiple copies of that because, you know, which family do you know that does not have few members that are not suffering from diabetes? Or as we've renamed it, should be concerned about their energy metabolism. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited and I can't thank you guys enough for doing this. We're putting it in text so that people can, you know, empower themselves by just, you know, getting a copy of your book and your message is so strong and very needed at a time when, you know, the hospitals are crashing under the expenses of the sick care system of, you know, treating the damaging consequences of diabetes. And here you are, you're saying not only are you going to be able to reverse and control your diabetes, but you're actually going to thrive in the whole process and live a wonderful life. Yeah. This is so beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank Appreciate you so much it. for coming and for speaking with us. And I know that this is not the final conversation. Absolutely not. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. You guys are doing tremendous work. And the the information that you guys bring to the table to really teach people about how their brain functions is bar none. I mean, I, I learned so much from you guys whenever I'm watching you at scientific conferences and I feel like I'm only hitting the scratch the scratch in the, the surface. But you guys also have a really fundamental understanding of how diabetes affects your brain, insulin resistance affects your brain, pre-diabetes affects your brain. And just like you were saying, you know, this message is, you know, diabetes, like you, you don't die from diabetes, you die from all the complications that diabetes creates right? And impaired cognition is one of them. In addition to fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, heart disease, you name it. And so really, we think of this book as basically being a gateway to being able to improve your overall health. We just happen to be using diabetes as sort of the entryway to get people interested. So point being, thank you. I just want to add that not only do we learn a lot from your guys' published material and conferences, but every single time I talk to one of you two or your children, I learn something new. <laughs> it is unbelievable. I kid you not. This is the smartest family I have ever come across. <laughs> I think you guys kind of like know it and understand it. And I was taken as like a responsibility. And you guys do do that. Like you're like, you know what? We sort of have these gifts, these mental capacities that you guys have, <laughs> and you're, you're doing good work with it. It's really inspiring. It really is. Selfish. Look who we're sitting across. It is, it is. Uh, you guys are not only friends, but your family. We love you so much and you inspire us. And thank you so much for we everything We love you, you guys. Do. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.